welcome to the Dose of Good podcast, where I share with you good people and organizations doing good things. In our world, we constantly hear about the bad and negative things that go on, and I think we should hear more about the good happening every day that isn't shared or talked about as much. I will be featuring nonprofit organizations and the individuals who help them to be a success. I would also love to celebrate good people doing good and kind things on their own. If you know of anyone, send them my way. I'm your host, Erin Rowe. Now let's get into today's episode. For today's episode, I'm going to be speaking about families in transition. I talked to Maria Devlin, President and CEO. Maria was a wealth of information sharing so many things that this organization does, and they certainly do a lot. I hope that you enjoy listening to today's episode and all the great work that Families in Transition is doing. Now let's get into it. All right, today I'm here with Maria Devlin, President and CEO of Families in Transition. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, you're welcome. So could you start by telling me about the mission of Families in Transition as well as what services they offer? Yes, certainly. We provide a continuum of services uh, for families and individuals who are experiencing homelessness. And our mission is to prevent and break the cycle of homelessness. And we do that through a variety of services. We have um, both um, emergency shelters for adults and for families. We have housing for our low-income families and individuals. We also have a food pantry for food insecurity, and we have a substance use treatment program as well. Okay. And uh, you also have the thrift store, right? And that's to go back to, uh, is it to fund those other parts of Families in Transition? Or do you want to tell me a little about that? Yeah. The Outfitters Thrift Store is an amazing operation, actually. Um, we receive donations of goods from all around the community, and we do sell those goods back to the community in one way, shape, or form. So it serves a couple of different purposes. Number one, it serves as a way for Families in Transition to receive some revenue from the spin off of the sales of the products that we sell, but it also allows us to help the families and the individuals we serve and the community um, to access things that they may not have when they move into housing. So the Outfitters Thrift Store often supplies things like sweatpants, shirts, um, socks, mittens, hats, those basic things to our emergency shelters. Families who are housed with us can also access outfitters to maybe buy a birthday present at a very low cost. We have coupons that we give out um, or buy Christmas decorations or holiday decorations. I think about um, Halloween uh, trick-or-treat little outfits for children. Um, So Outfitters is an important part of how we face the community because the community sees that as a part of Families in Transition, and so it's a community-based program, but it also helps serve the people that we serve. Okay. And are there any areas you want to go in more detail about as far as uh, food programs, substance use, treatment, the housing, any of those things? Yeah, certainly. 
Um, Families in Transition really started as a housing program. Um, it began uh, over 20 years ago really to support um, primarily women um, with children um, who may have been in some domestic violence situations. And so it was housing that provided services for those women and children to help them become stable and then potentially move out to a more um, permanent housing solution for them and their family. Over the course of now 20, 30 years, um, the organization has grown tremendously. So we actually own 26 buildings. Um, most of them are in Manchester, but we also have some buildings in Concord, Woofboro. And um, the primary um, reason for those buildings is housing. It's low income housing. It's for people who are chronically homeless and um, need a place to live and we provide supportive services to them. So it could be an adult or it could be a family. Um, they may stay with us anywhere between three and five years and then be at a place where they can actually move out on their own. Our housing is subsidized. So um, oftentimes you'll hear um, the term Section H voucher, it's kind of an old um, term. Um, the term today is a housing choice voucher or a housing voucher. And so what those housing vouchers do is it allows our families to stay in our housing where they only pay about 30% of their income. So the majority of the people we work with are paying less than $500 in rent, but then the rest of their um, rent is subsidized. So this allows them, again, to become stable um, and figure out for themselves and their families how they want to move forward in the community. And they can stay with us three to five years and then we help them move on to a, a more stable place. So the majority of our buildings are, are um, for housing. Um, Emergency shelters is a critical part of the continuum of care for people who are homeless. So we have both an adult shelter in Manchester and a family shelter in Manchester and also a family shelter in Wolfboro. And those are really for adults and families who are experiencing homelessness. They don't have any place to go. They may have couch surfed or been with friends and family for a while, um, but they don't have any place to go right now and they are literally homeless. They're sleeping in cars, they're sleeping in the parks, and um, they come to us um, as a place to stay for as long as they really need it. The majority of our adults really stay with us about two weeks. They're in between jobs, they, um, you know, they need to find other housing, but the housing market is tight and the apartment mm -hmm. <laughs> um, market is, is really tight. Um, and then there's a variety of adults who stay with us, you know, six to nine months. They're really trying to figure out what their next step is. And then there's some adults who stay with us for a longer period of time. They're, they are typically people who are um, dealing with a, a variety of traumas in their life, whether it's substance use or um, mental health issues. Um, but we really work with all of the adults um, on what is their next step in the in to mm -hmm. becoming housed. And so we work with them on everything from, do they have their ID? Do they have their social security card? Do they have their birth certificate? These are all things that you need to actually get an apartment or to be housed in one way, shape or form. So the majority of our work when we're working with adults in the adult shelter is all around 
housing navigation where this is not the place for you to live. This is a stopping point um, where you can be safe, um, but this is this is only a stopping place. We want you to be in a, a place where you feel safe and you have a roof over your head. The same is true for our families. Our families stay with us though for a, a little bit longer period of time. They're usually come to us when they really have have nowhere else to go. Um, and so um, families stay with us really anywhere from six to nine months. Um, it's a chance for them to become really stable, um, help their kids get into the school system and make sure their schooling is being um, done the way it needs to be done and they're getting the education that they need. Um, and families, sometimes it's harder to find appropriate housing for them because it can be large families and small families, but again, our, our rental and housing market is just really, really tight. Mm -hmm. So that is um, like housing and emergency services. Our pantry is on Lake Ave. Um, it's an expanded pantry that allows um, our shoppers to come in and, and really have a, what I would call a shopping experience. So it looks very much like how you and I would enter into any grocery store and people have the opportunity to pick out the items that resonate with them. So we're not just handing out a box of food. They can go through and pick out the items that are important for them and their family. Um, and uh, families are allowed to come to us one time a month and they leave with about 50 pounds of food. Um, and they leave with not only box goods or canned goods, but a variety of fresh fruits and vegetables that we're able to acquire from um, places like Hannaford and Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. Um, we have a partnership with them through the New Hampshire Food Bank and it allows our shoppers to come in and really get a variety of food to meet the needs of, of them and their family. And we serve about you know 800 households every month through our food pantry. So um, for us it's really important to provide this food because oftentimes we hear people who are paying rent are deciding between paying rent and buying food for them and their family. And for us, this allows families to remain housed. And if we can provide the food, then that's gonna be a stronger community overall. And then our substance use treatment program, um, it's, a, it's a smaller program, I think, compared to some, uh, many other substance use treatment programs. It serves about 38 women um, in inpatient, um, as well as we do a small program for recovery housing for women who are reuniting with their children um, after going through kind of um, recovery. Um, and so both of those programs really are um, helping women and women and children get back to where they need to be in order to, for them to be safe and to live in the community um, and, and live hopefully substance free. So that's a, a lot about the work that we do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a few follow-up things based on what you told me. So one would be, do you take food donations for the pantry and if so is there like a list on your website of the most needed items that's a great question um yes we do accept food donations and we do have what we call a high needs list on our website it's uh fitnh.org um, fitnewhampshire.org um 
And uh, it's a high needs list. Um, I'll, I know off the top of my head, a big request of ours is coffee. <laughs> um, we use the coffee at our emergency shelter and at our family shelter, as well as providing coffee to the community. So anything that comes into our pantry, we utilize in a couple of different ways. Our emergency services um, work at the adult shelter supports 138 men and women every single day and we provide breakfast lunch and dinner every single day and so um, our pantry serves not only as a community way to feed the community and it also helps us defray our costs and feed the people who we're serving every single day so um, things like coffee things like um, uh, canned goods are always important, tuna fish, anything that's easy to open. Um, we also serve people who are not living in shelter and maybe not living in a home. So if somebody is um, living on the streets or in their car, we provide um, what we would consider um, kind of uh, daily opportunities for somebody to come in and grab kind of the things they want, bread, peanut butter, tuna fish, things that are easy for somebody to kind of open and, and manipulate for themselves. But yes, we accept lots of donations and um, you can visit our website to find out the hours that we accept donations and, and when we're open. Okay. And then the other thing I was wondering is if people, how do you, people, do they come to you to acquire services? Are they referred to you or do you seek out people who need help? All three, okay. actually. Um, so we do have some outreach programming um, that is not as vibrant as it had been in the past. So our emergency shelter, um, we're full at 138. And um, unfortunately, for well over the past 18 months, we've been almost full every single night. We average about 130 adults every single night. Prior to um, the last couple of years, we had an outreach team who would go out into the woods or behind buildings and really seek out people who were experiencing homelessness and to see if they wanted to seek shelter. So we would talk with them, find out if they needed any water, hand warmers, socks, whatever it is that we could start a conversation with them on. And then we would get to the point of offering them an opportunity to come inside. And if they wanted to come inside, we would basically sign them in. Um, so we do, we do some outreach, but there's a lot of other um, community programs that do outreach, such as the Manchester Fire Department does outreach, the Manchester Police Department does outreach, um, the Mental Health Center of Greater Manchester does outreach. So there's a lot of other groups who go out now and do outreach and, and really perform that function. And so we do work with all of those groups for referrals. We work with the school system in Manchester, as well as the school systems throughout the entire state to refer families to our services. Um, there's not as many family shelters in the state of New Hampshire as there are adult shelters. And quite frankly, there's not even enough adult shelters um, because there's so many people who are still experiencing homelessness and living outside. Um, but there's even less family shelters. And in Manchester alone, we have a wait list of over 50 families. And the top 12 of those families are actually living in their cars. And, um, and this means usually that the families are separated. Um, parents will sleep in their car while they ask a friend or family to take care of their kids, as one would expect. 
if the state finds out that kids are sleeping in cars, there becomes a family dynamic that a lot of parents really don't want to deal with because their children will probably be removed Mm -hmm. because it's unsafe. Mm -hmm. But a lot of parents are making the choice that they will live outside so that their children can live inside, um, but it doesn't help the family grow together as a family, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, the the families that we serve come through us, come to us through the school system. They could be referred from uh, a therapist or from the state, the WIC program, any any type of program. Who knows that the family is struggling in one way, shape, or form? Mm-hmm. Um, housing that's a tough one. Our families and individuals come from everywhere. They come from internal, they come from external. There's wait lists in regards to our housing, um, as well as uh, substance use treatment. We get a lot of referrals from the doorway or other substance use treatment programs that may be full um, and to see if these if women would qualify for our programming. So they come both internally, externally, and, and all the way around. Okay. And would you say there are misconceptions about homelessness and what would those be if there are? I think there are misconceptions around homelessness mostly because we as a community are seeing more homelessness now probably than we ever had before. Um, I talked with you earlier about living in New Hampshire in my entire life, and I have worked in and around Manchester my entire nonprofit career. And um, when I look around Manchester, it certainly has changed over the course of time. Um, I drive through Bedford quite often, and I have seen panhandling happening in Bedford. And um, homelessness is everywhere. I um, received a call actually from a friend of mine who works in the town that I grew up in and still live in today and they're hoteling families more than they ever expected and they they were seeking what what can we do with these families they're in hotels across you know this town and and there's no hope for them to get an apartment anywhere around the town so that the kids can stay in the school still stay in the school system So I think we're seeing a lot more homelessness than we ever have before. And I think the the stigma around homelessness is really what worries most people, right? Whether somebody is using drugs or um, they may maybe have a mental health issue. And that all like leads to the stigma of everyone is like that. And that's just not true. Um, You know, my mother and brother were homeless for a time. They didn't abuse drugs or alcohol. They couldn't find a place to live and on the income that they had. And and eventually they found themselves in a car and living in hotels and finally found a place that would accept their low income. And um, it, homelessness is not always what you see. Um, and it's not always what you think, and it's up to us as a community and community members to do everything that we can. If we're gonna be a community, it's not just a community for the wealthy, it's a community for all the members of the community. And that's statewide. Um, you know, we, we have a housing issue and a, an apartment issue across the state of New Hampshire. I read recently that New Hampshire is one of the top four places where there's not enough places to live in the whole United States, we're New Hampshire. And we're ranked fourth, and I think it's like California is first, or you know some of these bigger states. 
housing is such an issue and it's not just housing it's the fact that new hampshire has to be able to provide housing for those who are not going to make thirty five, sixty thousand dollars a year. And those are the people that Families in Transition works with each and every day. It's it's the very low income who've had years of trauma um, and probably generational homelessness. Mm. And so it's not always what you see or what you think. Um, and so I just ask people to be open to that. Sure. So do you think it is partly the housing that's contributing to there being more homelessness or are there other factors that could be contributing to that or yeah i think there's a couple of factors definitely housing housing and homelessness there's there's no way around it um but in order to end homelessness or or come closer to ending homelessness we have to have a variety of housing there's a lot of work that has taken place over the past 10 years five to ten years on veteran housing We've done really great as a state and as a nation to ensure that our veterans are not homeless and and they shouldn't be. Um, And we need to think about that for all different types of groups. Um, We're now seeing um, our emergency shelters across New Hampshire and across the United States are becoming basically nursing homes. We have a lot of people who are growing older in our communities who can't afford these rents. And, and unfortunately, landlords can make decisions to um, increase rent and they can get greater rents than, than maybe uh, somebody who is a senior who has a fixed income. And so we are seeing a lot of seniors who are losing their rental because they're, it's just go, the rent is going up too high. So there's not enough housing, again, for people who are lower income. So it's, it's definitely a housing issue, but then we have different pockets of people who need special attention. So our seniors and elderly, um, people who need medical respite, you know, me- people who are medically frail really shouldn't be in an emergency shelter. We're not a medical facility. Um, and we saw that during COVID, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. people were very medically frail and they couldn't be in a congregate shelter. So where do they go? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's lots of different overlapping reasons why homelessness has grown in the past few years. Um, but it certainly has to do with the growing um, increases in price um, for mm-hmm. all rentals across the entire state. Mm-hmm. And just kind of looking at things from a little bit of a different angle, how big of a problem is hunger in the state of New Hampshire? Well, I'm certainly not an expert on hunger, but I think our um, partners at the New Hampshire Food Bank, um, they have a better idea of what is, ha- what is happening across the entire state. But from our food pantry, just over the course of the past two years, when it was really open, um, we've seen a growth of you know, four to 500 families a month to eight, 900 families a month. And that's a tremendous amount of people. And again, we only serve people once a month, except for people who are coming in for maybe a daily meal. Um, So that's a pretty stark increase um, of people who are food insecure. 
Um, we know our school systems are still having a lot of children who um, need support for their meals, breakfast, lunch, and maybe a take-home meal for dinner or on the weekends or during the summer. Um, food insecurity is a, is a growing concern because people are making the choice to pay their rent or buy food. Um, and, I, and parts of our communities are not always, um, food is not always available um, for folks. Um, and that's why I think you see more food insecurity or homelessness around the bigger cities um, because that's where all the services are. There's more shopping places, there's buses, there's, there's more opportunity for people to get their needs met in um, the more city-like ur you know, urban areas. Um, but we've definitely seen uh, the need for food increased um, over the past couple of years after, after the pandemic. Okay. Could you tell me a little bit about your walk against hunger and then your annual breakfast? Yeah. We have two signature events for the organization. So one is the Walk Against Hunger. It's held in May of every year. There'll be information um, probably up in January on our website for this year's walk. It's a it's a less than a three mile walk. It's a it's an open event. It starts at Veterans Park in Manchester. We have hundreds of people um, showing up, and we have groups of corporations or rotaries or um, schools or um, just it's a huge community event and everyone can come out and and walk we've had um, people uh, show up with their dogs and their kids and strollers and it's just a big open event um, and we walk um, the route changes every year um, we try and make sure that we walk by at least one of our programs because a lot of our programming in buildings are downtown um, so that people can see uh, families in transition in the community um, and uh, we have music uh, there's games there's water um, it's a real easy way to get involved there's a there's an entry fee and then if you want to raise money that's always wonderful um, and you can buy a t-shirt um, and it raises you know well $160,000 ish for the organization and we'd love to see it grow. Um, the breakfast event is uh, a wonderful event as well it's uh, an event that happens two days before Thanksgiving every year and we just celebrated our 30th annual so next year will be 31. Um, it's held at the Doubletree uh, this year we had about 550 um, people attend the breakfast which was absolutely amazing and it's quick it's it's a breakfast it's coffee in the morning it's a quick breakfast we say a few words we ask you to give us money and then we we wish you a, a wonderful holiday with your friends and family um, for many people it's a way to kick off the holiday season it's a way to give back and to learn a little bit about what's happening in uh, their community uh, and it's it's a big it's a big event and we'd love more people to get involved in that as well. All right, that's great. And what volunteer opportunities are available if somebody's looking to get involved with families in transition and how would they go about doing that? That's a great question. Um, we love our volunteers. Uh, in many ways, they help us do the work that we do every single day. We couldn't do some of the work without our volunteers that we have. Um, so 
on our website there's a volunteer link and people can um, engage start the engagement that way but volunteers help in a number of different ways um, definitely at the food pantry right it's sorting food it's getting food on the shelves so that people can go through it's talking with the the customers who are coming through um, to, to make sure they're getting what they need um, so there's a lot of volunteers who support the food pantry we have volunteers who help us at outfitters the retail store so again it's sorting through clothes deciding helping to decide what goes on the floor and what does not go on the floor um, it's it's uh, doing a lot of that work it's customer relations by helping customers and uh, maybe even checking people out so volunteers are wonderful at outfitters um, we also have volunteers integrated into um, our substance use treatment program, mostly interns, um, but definitely there's volunteer opportunities there. And we have volunteers who help us um, prep our meals at the emergency shelter. Um, I think there's other opportunities for volunteers to also help us at the emergency shelter by helping us get ready for each night. Um, each night, uh, the individuals who come in who are staying with us um, they get dinner uh, and then they all shower, they all need a towel, they all need blankets, they all need all their hygiene products to shower. And it, there's a lot of, lot of stuff that happens. And so volunteers who are interested in getting involved in the emergency shelter, we could work with them on, you know, just helping really during this like four to seven or eight, those hours when people are coming in, it's busy um, and there's a lot of needs of 138 people. So. Um, we would say there's lots of volunteer opportunities. We've had people paint some of our buildings, inside our buildings, outside of our buildings. Um, we've had help with trash pickup. <laughs> we've had help with um, putting together a playground. Um, there's a variety of things. Not everything happens every day, but going on our website would be one way to get started. Okay, that's great. So how did you get involved with Families in Transition? Mm. So I am a nonprofit junkie, I guess, right? So my entire career has been involved in nonprofits. Actually, even before I graduated from college, I was involved in nursing homes and the mental health center and residential care. Um, and I've always just wanted to um, make our communities better and, um, and help people in one way, shape or form. So I've been blessed with having wonderful opportunities here in the state of New Hampshire, primarily um, in, in being involved in nonprofits that have dealt with child abuse and neglect to mental health issues to, um, I worked at the American Red Cross for a number of years to um, children who had uh, illnesses. So I've done a lot of work throughout the entire state. Um, and this opportunity really came about because um, I'm actually the only the second CEO um, at Families in Transition. Maureen Beauregard, uh, it was the founder of um, Families in Transition, and, and she decided after 20 some odd years of, of being the CEO at the organization to move to another organization. So she's still in Manchester. Uh, she actually is at Easter Seals um, and doing great things over there. And uh, when I first considered working at Families in Transition, I thought, who would be crazy enough to, to take on a role after a founding CEO and who had been been there for so long? Um, and then I thought more about it, and um, 
I had some discussions with some of the some of the um, hiring committee, and I thought, what a great way to to continue Maureen's legacy um, and and do some great things in the city of Manchester during a really challenging time. I actually started during the first few months of COVID, and so um, we were focused on COVID and making sure our individuals and families were safe as well as our staff. Um, and we've made a lot of really great changes um, in the past few years that I've been there, um, but we have a long way to go. There's a lot more work that we can do, um, but it's been a joy to work there, to see the families that we work with and the individuals once they're moved into their own apartment. Um, it's really amazing work that the staff do day in and day out. And what would you say is your favorite thing about your job? Oh, my favorite thing about my job, I mean, quite honestly, it's the staff. You know, I don't, I'm not as close to all the clients that we serve every single day. I go and I serve lunch with at the adult shelter or I go and visit the families at the family shelter. Um, but my primary role as, as president and CEO is to make sure that my staff are happy and that they're doing a good job to serve the individuals and families that we serve because it's hard work. And if they do not feel supported um, or motivated to do this work, then we'll fail right away because they are the ones who are really talking with the people who have needs and they're dealing with the heaviness of the role every single day. And so the more that I'm able to learn from them and support them, uh, that gives me a tremendous amount of pride. Um, but they are they are the shining star of the organization. We wouldn't be able to run without all of them. And is there anything you find particularly challenging about the work you do? Yeah, the, you know, uh, the work is hard, that's for sure. Um, but nothing is as hard, not just for families in transition, but for any nonprofit, the funding. The funding just is not there consistently for nonprofits to do all the good work that we need to do. Um, and so for those of your listeners who know about Families in Transition, we have been very clear about what it is that we can do and what it is we can't do based on the funding. Um, unfortunately, even though our expenses go up, our funding doesn't always go up. And so we're left more and more with doing more for less. And that is a real challenge, especially today. Um, we just talked about staff and uh, keeping staff is critically important in the work that we do. And every time I have a staff turnover, it costs me more money <laughs> to bring somebody else in, to train them, to have them start to do the work and then to potentially leave. And all, my staff demand a good pay and um, and they deserve it and so the funding for the work that we do is the biggest challenge there's there's no doubt about it we can do the work we can continue to do the work um, but if organizations like ours um, are not able to get the federal state funding that we need it's going to be much much harder for us to continue to do it that's that's hard to hear, but it is the the honest truth. Yeah. 
I'm just thinking that's, I hope that you're able to, I don't know what goes into all of that with the funding, but from earlier in our discussion, it sounds like there's more of a demand and need for all of these services than ever, and that there aren't even enough now to serve all the people that need it. So what you're doing is very important, and I hope that uh, whoever provides funding to you will recognize that. So Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, the state of New Hampshire has made some changes to its funding, so that has been very positive, Um, but it's, it's not enough. And um, as a community, we need to figure out, just like you said, how how are we going to maintain these services so that um, the people who are in the most need are getting the support that they they need and deserve. Yeah. And so how can people help or get involved in addition to volunteering their time? Is there anything that they can do to help the organization or... Yeah, I think um, becoming an advocate, right? So becoming somebody who um, educates themselves a little bit more about what homelessness is and what it's not, I think is is really important. And to teach their children, you know, those lessons um, because we're more apt, our children are more apt to see somebody who is homeless on the street than ever before. (laughs) And so it's okay to have conversations about why somebody might be living on the street, um, but to also help help everyone understand that not everyone is scary just mm-hmm. because they live on the street that's mm-hmm. that's um we don't we don't want that stigma to continue so mm-hmm. i think become an advocate and a- educate yourself um in a number of ways we have information but there's lots of information out there about homelessness in general um i think people can definitely volunteer people can definitely donate their time their their finances is, is extremely important But I think I would also ask that all your listeners and the community of New Hampshire really take a look at what's happening in their community and think about the ways that their community can actually be part of the solution. Um, Our zoning restrictions in New Hampshire are tight. Every single town has their own rules about how many acres can be for somebody's house and if they allow tiny homes or multi, multi, uh, not multi-level homes, but like a... Multi-family? A, 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 well, multi-family as well as like condo, different types of condos okay. and sizes of housing. In yep. um, some communities allow it all and some communities don't allow any of it. Right. Some communities say it's every single family home has to have five acres. And that could be four acres of land that could be used in another way. Sure. Um, so I would ask that community members really think about the zoning in their own um, towns because cities like Manchester can't house every single community member who is low income. Um, they can house a lot, um, but they're running out of land as well. And so every single community needs to look at uh, what it can do to support its most vulnerable community members and make sure that they have a place to live. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to talk about? I think covered a tremendous amount of, of information. I, I think um, what I'd let everyone know is I mentioned earlier that, you know, we have about 20, over 20 buildings uh, here in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, we're an organization that we, we have about a $12 million budget. We have about 120 employees. Um, and each and every night, uh, about 600 people 
um, lay their head in a families in transition bed in one way, shape, or form. So um, we serve thousands of families and individuals every year, but every single night over 600 people are kind of sleeping with us in a families in transition bed. So even though you might not see every single one of our buildings because we don't put our name on every single building, um, we want people to know that we are out there and that we're serving the community in a way that is desperately needed. And I appreciate you inviting us here today. Oh yeah, I just have two final questions that I'd like to ask sure. everybody. The first is what nonprofit we should feature next? Oh, well, that's a good one. Um, well, depending on what the theme is, well, I, I will I will say I'm partial to animals, so I would say a uh, nonprofit that's focused on animals. Unfortunately, um, just like all of our nonprofits that focus on people are struggling, I know there's a lot of animal um, rescue leagues that are struggling as well. Uh, people are um, getting rid of their pets, and there's challenges there across. So would you say like Animal Rescue League of New Hampshire or okay yeah Yeah, there's a big one in um, Stratum I think and then there's the Bedford Animal Shelter Manchester and there's probably one here too more closer okay yeah that'd be great because we haven't had that area of things yet so that would be great to share with people yes yes definitely (laughs) and the last question is what is the kindest thing you've witnessed or been a part of Oh my goodness. Ever? I know it's tough because especially in the work you do, there's probably multiple instances. So just whatever comes to mind is fine. Well, probably not um, one ever in my entire life, but actually um, the last couple of months, um, a gentleman who was at our adult emergency shelter uh, was housed in an apartment in Nashua. And after he was housed and settled, he sent a fruit basket to our staff at the adult shelter. And um, they were just absolutely over the moon with that very, very small gesture. And I think um, that it just goes back to, you know, not everyone who is homeless is the stigma that you might think, you know, this, this gentleman just had hard, fell upon hard times. Um, and he wanted to say thank you. And he sent something to my staff. I think that was an incredibly kind thing to do. And I, and that he probably doesn't even know how much it touched all of them. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful to see. Yeah, that's amazing. And I appreciate you being here today. And You've shared so much great information with us. I've learned a lot, and hopefully the listeners will learn as well and look into families and transitions more and see how they themselves can help out because I know I'm inspired to help out now. So I greatly appreciate everything you shared with us today and for being here with us today. Well, we appreciate you helping us spread the word, and um, it's been an honor meeting you and and being here. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and learning more from Maria about families in transition. As you can see, they do a number of great things for the community. I hope that you will take some time to look into them further. I know I certainly learned a lot from this episode and hope to do more 
on my own to help organizations like this. I will leave all of the information for Families in Transition in the description, both on the podcast and on YouTube. If you aren't already, be sure to follow Dose of Good Podcast on Instagram and Facebook for all the latest information on the podcast. I hope that today's episode has inspired you to get more involved with organizations such as Families in Transition and do your part to help in your community. If you have any requests of nonprofits that you'd like to see on the podcast, please let me know in the YouTube description or by sending me an email at doseofgoodpodcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Erin Rowe. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.